Okay, look, I've got some hang-ups about the gaming world. It's totally because I was with a man-child who spent more hours playing God of War than battling the bathroom remodel. But... The gaming world is huge. Huge! And I give it respect. It's also pretty male-driven. So when Sam Maggs was hired to do this incredibly popular Knights of the New Republic remake, there was a lot of pushback because Sam is a she. She writes video games, comics, is an author of many books, especially in the nerdverse. In this episode of Traverse Talks, Sam Maggs discusses changes in the gaming industry from who is creating to who owns it, and about the core of what makes games so compelling the immersive story where you have agency. It's very exciting. I have a fun young producer who introduced me to your work, and I feel like I've seen your work before but didn't know it was you, so that was fun. And I just ordered Wonder Women and Girl Squads, I want to say for my 11-year-old daughter, but really it's for myself. Oh my gosh, thank you. Well, they're designed to be enjoyed by the whole family, so it's perfect. <laughs> great. Because look, I, um, I'm i 44, and my education when it comes to women in any field <laughs> was uh, little. I mean, there was Oprah. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I'm firmly a millennial and same. <laughs> like Exactly. So I'm so glad that there's a fun, vibrant, colored books out that you've helped create and write so I can educate myself uh, of all the missing parts in my history that I need to know about. Because growing up, it's like... Um, yeah, it never occurred to me that women were involved in so many things. I just happened to be half the population, but not half of what I was reading about or viewing. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for saying that, first of all. And that's exactly what I write them for. You know, I write the books that I wish I had had when I was a, a teenager or preteen or growing up. And frankly, even now, um, to your point. And I think that it took me a really long time because of the way we were educated to realize that, you know, history is not necessarily truth. Everyone presents history differently. And depending on the person who's writing about it, whether that be 200 years ago or now, everyone has a different perspective and agenda that they're bringing to that history as they're writing it. So mine happens to be trying to uncover some of the lost stories that we don't really get to hear anymore because of whose stories were prioritized or deemed important or worthy at the time. Oh, yeah. And I'm thankful you're doing that. Well, what was it only, I think, five years ago, I found out about the warrior queen Bodica and that she, burnt, oh, yeah. right? and she burnt down London. And I'm like, hold up. What? <laughs> Why was this not in any of our textbooks? <laughs> Excuse me. She burnt down London. That's a big fucking deal. And I know nothing about this. Seriously. And there are so many stories like that. There's countless, you know, and mm -hmm. all different fields. And it's really a shame. So I hope we're able to sort of reclaim some of that. Me too. So Sam, you are a Canadian American author, uh, books, comics, video games. There's Call of Duty Vanguard, Tiny Tina's Wonderlands, and some unknown game. What's it called? Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that old thing. Oh, that old thing. Books I mentioned earlier and um, loads of comics. Now, out of the three, so out of books, comics, video games, which community has shat on you the most? <laughs> 
Oh, gaming for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no question. <laughs> that, that's an easy answer. <laughs> However, I will also say that um, I like to think that kind of people that I make angry with my work, if I'm not making them angry, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> oh. So I just try to, you know, accept that. <laughs> that means that I have a perspective. And then I just take the, the good stuff and run with that. <laughs> Sam, I love that. If you're not making them angry, you're not doing the essence of the work you're set out to do. That's perfect. Thank you for just a different angle on the whole thing. <laughs> you're so welcome. So, I mean, I know you probably have lots more supportive people in the industry and fans, but I am so curious, what is it like being a brilliant storyteller in a predominantly man's world? Um, it's challenging and it's also exciting, uh, in, in both of the industries that I, you know, in comics and video games, especially, I, I think one industry is like 16% women. And I think the other is like 22. Um, so we're still really lagging there in terms of behind the screen and behind the page representation. So I do find myself often being the only woman in the room and that, that can present a series of challenges in that I think a lot of the times places will hire people like me either to look like they're being progressive without actually wanting to do the work or because they think they want to do it. But then when you bring up the things that they hired you to do, you get a lot of pushback mm. because, you know, change is hard. Um, there's ultimately we're making products as well as art. So there's nervousness about making money and, you know, capitalism and all of that. And um, it can be difficult sometimes to be the voice that's trying to say, I know you guys aren't bad people, but your representation of these characters is lagging or your diversity behind the scenes is lagging. Um, you know, that can be interpreted in like a bunch of different ways that aren't always positive. Mm -hmm. So I've had experiences with folks over the years who are not super stoked about hearing that kind of feedback. And then I've also had experiences with people who are really grateful for it and end up making, you know, great art out of, you know, looking in places or for people that they would never have looked at before. So um, it's a great opportunity. I would not be in this position were it not for women before me who had it even harder. Mm. Um, and so I have it a little bit easier than they did. And I think it's my responsibility to make it a little bit easier for the girls and women and non-binary people and queer people um, who come into these environments after me. You're like a long road goals here, yeah. right? And, yeah. and a higher um, communal mentality about it all and your place in it. But Sam, aren't there times that you feel a bit drained by it? <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm at a place in my career now where I'm able to say like, hey, these are my priorities. Um, if this doesn't align with your priorities for like a place that I'm interviewing or whatever, then we're not going to get along. Like this is not going to be a productive work environment or fruitful for either one of us. So like, let's not even bother. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so all the places that I work now generally are places that know who I am, what I have to say, what my perspective is, what my voice is, like why I'm bringing that to the table and are really open to that. So I'm, I'm fortunate at this point now, but it is, it is exhausting and, you know, <laughs> I'm queer and I'm a woman, but I'm also white. Um, so for people of color as well, like there's all these other marginalizations that can intersect and it is exhausting. It is exhausting having to do the work all the time and to see slow progress, but I do think we're seeing progress and that is, yes, that's encouraging. It can be hard though. I mean, it's, it puts a lot of pressure 
on the marginalized people to always be the ones putting their neck on the line to advocate for change. And I've definitely been on the receiving end of like some negative, (laughs) Um, you know, not all bosses have loved me. I'm going to be straight up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I haven't loved all bosses. So it goes Mm -hmm. both ways. (laughs) Well, I'm really struck with that neck on the line thing because, you know, not too long ago in history, literally people were sacrificing their lives to move humanity forward. Yeah. It's so weird to me thinking about that literal sacrifice, but then also an emotional one you do in the virtual world, in this creative content realm. And it does take a toll there too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it makes it worth it when you get to put something out into the world that touches even one person, you know, and makes them feel seen or you know, it's all worth it for those moments. But for me, it's, I try to see where like uh, the people who get nervous or angry about changes or an increase in diversity in these fields come from. Um, Because for a lot of folks, you know, comics or games have been their safe space for a really long time. Uh, These are people who haven't largely been accepted other places. And so they're worried about that being taken away or changing and not feeling welcome there anymore. But to those people, it's, I always say, like, I'm not trying to take away Captain America. We're always going to have Captain America. Like, he's not going anywhere. We should just also have Captain Marvel and Black Panther and all these other superheroes. You know, there's no limit to the amount of page space or hard drive space (laughs) that we have. So there's room enough for representation for everyone. And it's, it's okay to share that space. Did you know that you can find us on Spotify? Just look up Traverse Talks and we're the first result. Happy listening. So this is a complicated question and I want to work out with you. You probably do work with other women in all realms of the industries that you are in. Yes. And I am sure you've come across some real asshole women, but should you still work together because you're both women? So this is a great question, and I'm really glad you brought this up. And I will start by saying that 99% of the women I've worked with in all of these industries have been so wonderful, fantastic allies, supportive, a big fan of cooperating rather than, you know, feeling like we have to compete with each other, all that stuff. So I, I have been really, really fortunate. And now I'm at a point in my career where I have hiring power too, so I get to hire more marginalized folks as well, which is also very exciting. So that's been great. However, my very first boss in this industry was a woman slightly like maybe 20 years older than me. Um, And she had a lot of internalized misogyny and she was not a great boss to work for. And she, um, she viewed all of the other women, in my opinion, at the studio as threats. Um, And I did at the time, try to be empathetic to that because I understand that she came up in the industry in a very different time than I did when there really was only ever artificially room for one woman at the table. And if it wasn't you, it was going to be someone else. And so you had to cut other women down. So I understand that she came up in a time where she felt that she had to participate in that sort of patriarchal competitiveness against other women. And it can be hard to break out of that mindset. I do get that. However, 
it is 2022. And like, I also had an, I'm not like other girls <laughs> phase when I was in high school. <laughs> I also was like, I wear Converse <laughs> with my dresses. You know what I mean? Like I also had that phase, but I educated myself and I grew out of it and I worked hard to overcome that. And I think lots of women have worked very hard to overcome that in themselves too. And so uh, my experience with this woman is that I didn't really have any sympathy for her at this point, to be honest. Like, I don't think it's acceptable to treat other women that way. I think as an older woman and a woman with more experience in the industry, as a mentor, you have a responsibility to hold the door open for other women as opposed to shutting in their faces. And frankly, I have lots of... Um, mentors in this industry who are women who are not like that, who are like incredible and have gotten me tons of job interviews and have been wonderful, like uh, to learn from and who have wanted to staff the industry with more and more women. And so, um, yeah, I actually, I'm out of patience for <laughs> women like that. I, I tried at first to, to be sympathetic, but I can't anymore. I do get it, but it's our job also to unlearn the things that we were brainwashed by society to learn when it affects other marginalized people. Listen, I'm just at the point in my life now where I don't really have any tolerance for assholes, <laughs> to yes. be honest. Whether that be in real life or in the office, I've dealt with a lot of like, quote unquote, genius assholes, um, where like, they're just people who are the worst and they're like, oh, but they make such great stuff. And it's like, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. I would rather a hundred times over work with someone who's nice and um, treats other people with respect and puts out like slightly less amazing work. Like I just, I think it says a lot about what we value in our society. Like, And it gets in the way of creativity. Yeah, it does. It gets in the way of making good games because for me, the more diversity of people that we have behind the page and the screen telling their story, like the more interesting stories that we're going to get, which benefits everyone because the more experiences you have to draw from, the cooler your stories are going to be and more interesting and more unique. And they're going to be stories we haven't seen before about cultures we haven't seen before. Um, like everybody wins then, you know? Oh, Sam, I'm, you answered a question about what makes a good story. I, I say this a lot, but uh, I have seen every iteration of white man with a light stubbly beard get superpowers um, that I think there can be. And don't get me wrong, I loved every single one of them. I loved them all. However, only so many different ways you can tell that story, which is why I think people were so excited for films like Black Panther yes. and for, you know, Black Widow and, and Captain Marvel and stuff like that and Shang-Chi because it's like, ah, this is so different. This is so interesting. That's just, I don't know, it's more exciting. No, it's true. I was stoked. I didn't really know Captain Marvel and so happy to see it. And then having a daughter, realizing how many things I have caught myself perpetuating as far oh, as... Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like the earliest one, I told her to quit being bossy. And a friend of mine kind of nudged me aside and said, you know, if Coco was a boy, you wouldn't even say a thing. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. That's so interesting. I wrote a book, a middle grade book, a fiction book for like eight to 12 year olds called Conquest about twins at Comic-Con participating in a scavenger hunt. 
And the gal twin, um, Kat, at a couple points in the book, I had her brother calling her bossy. And I remember my editor specifically being like, no, we don't do that. We will not be doing that. We will be changing this. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. Absolutely. So like I goof up all the time too, but it's good that we hold each other accountable to stuff like that. Cause we learn. Yeah. It's we're programmed that way, right? Right? Like it's really, it can be hard, but you got to be open to fixing it. I want to know what you think makes a good mentor. This is a great question. And I've had wonderful mentors who are both men and women um, and non-binary in the industry, actually. Mm. And for me, I think it's kind of exactly what you were saying before about adjusting your expectations in terms of the people that you're willing to reach a hand out to and help. Like no one is born knowing how to make a video game or how to make a comic. Like every single person has had someone teach them how to do that or help them. Um, and so for me, the best mentors that I've had have been the ones who have been willing to reach out a hand and say, I see a lot of potential in you, even though I know you don't know how to do this. And I'm going to take time out of my life to teach you how to do this so that you can come up after me and then hopefully teach people after you how to do this. Um, and so my first mentor in the industry was Patrick Weeks. They basically taught me how to write video games. And I'm super grateful for that. And I had only ever written books, like nonfiction books before that. Uh Um, So they were taking a really big chance on me. You know, they were willing to do that. They were willing to stick their neck out to say like, no, I have a lot of faith in this person. I think, you know, with the right training, they can learn how to do this. It's not innate. Like I never thought that I could get into video games with my, you know, being a woman and my experience in literature instead of coding, you know, all of these things. So it's about seeing that potential in someone and believing in them enough to really like put your own neck on the line. I think that's part of being a good ally too is if you are in a position of privilege, so if you're a white person speaking up on behalf of your people of color colleagues, or if you're a straight person speaking up for your queer colleagues and not making it so that they're always the ones having to bring up the problems or make those arguments, right. because they're a lot more likely to be punished for it than you are or retaliated against. So I often think about what I call political capital and how much of it goes unspent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's especially true. Like I owe a lot to Margaret Stoll, who was one of the first women game writers in the industry. She's been doing it for like 25 years. Um, But unlike my first boss, she is forever getting me job interviews and asking me to work with her and with people that she knows and, you know, Mm -hmm. teaching me what makes a good story in video games versus in comics. And that's the kind of like mentor that I aspire to be one day is someone who's willing to give their time and willing to risk, you know, their reputation a little bit on someone that they might not necessarily know for sure can do it, but that they see potential in. Take a chance on. And Sam, I feel as if all these mentors are helping to perpetuate the craft. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The art must go on. Absolutely. Have NWPB always in your pocket by downloading our free mobile app. Just search for NWPB wherever you get your apps so you can listen to us anywhere. You brought up two things that I'd like to go into a little bit deeper. What is the difference between writing a good story for a video game versus a graphic novel? That's a great question. Uh, There are tricks and tips to writing in all these different mediums. Um, Certain things work for some mediums that don't work in others. Uh, 
I think that the thing that people have to realize in video games is that narrative is just one small part of a really, really large whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in television, the writers are the showrunners. They run the show. In movies, it's the writer and director, and it's it's all about the story. Um, and in comics, too, you know, in comics, you share, I would say it's all about the art. So you share that narrative space with the artist. But in video games, the primary function of a game is that it feels good to play, whether that be it's fun or it's scary or the combat is great. It has to be a, a good, active experience first. And the narrative is just one of many parts of that. Like it's a very, very, very collaborative industry, especially when you think about the fact that sometimes there can be thousands and thousands of people working for six years on the same game to get everybody on the same page. Everyone is contributing to that. And so the narrative has to serve the greater purpose there, which is a game that feels good to play. Now that can provide a lot of challenges that you don't find in other mediums. Like um, they might be mad at me, but I can ask my artist in a comic book to draw whatever I want (laughs) and they'll do it. Um, But in a video game, the engine might not be able to support more than one character on the screen at a time, or we might not have a model for that type of character, or there's a lot of like technical limitations Ah. that they give you a real box within you have to keep your storytelling. Um, So there's more challenges in video games, but Mm -hmm. I think that those constraints also lead to more interesting and innovative methods of storytelling. Whereas comic books like that, you're telling a linear story and that's great. There's a ton of freedom. You don't have to worry about any VFX budget. (laughs) You don't have to worry about, you know, it's short for the most part, like you're kind of an auteur in comics, like between you and your author, you're, you're coming up with whatever you want to say and nobody's, except for your editor is really telling you otherwise. Mm. Um, In video games, there's usually like, 50 people who have seniority over the writer who are telling you what to do and think they know how to do story better than you do. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you're serving a lot of masters, right? You have a lot less control that way. But again, those challenges can lead to really interesting and innovative solutions. Yeah. Being creative in a boundary type frame. Yeah. That to me makes you more creative. Agreed. Fascinating insight. Thank you. Um, I was going to ask you if you're suffering less from Smurfette syndrome, but you gave us those percentages. So you still (laughs) probably are sometimes the only girl in the room. Yeah, sometimes it's getting a lot better, though, Um, especially I'm finding in comics now, many of my editors are women, which is amazing. Ah. And in games, too, a lot of the folks at my level are women or other marginalized people where we're still really struggling is in like the leadership ranks. Ah. There are not a lot of women in the real in charge big boss positions. Um, And that can be kind of tough. Sam, that's happening kind of, in my opinion, in the public broadcasting realm. Really? Tell me more. Well, you know, we were looking for a general manager. A lot of our candidates were typically, you know, white male. But when we really thought about it big picture wise, it's because who is of a certain generation that has the qualifications we needed? Yeah. It was the dudes. Yeah. So we had to reevaluate what qualifications and what does that mean? Are you looking for years in the industry? Because that bait is only going to catch a certain type of fish. Yeah. So reevaluating that and then just having this conversation uh, and really being realistic that every industry, including public broadcasting, which you would think would be way more inclusive, does have this uh, generation that's mostly males in charge and mostly white. And then on the flip side of that, it's looking at some of these men who want to stay and still have a lot to contribute and who would technically be allies, but they're being asked to move aside. Yeah. 
mediocre men are especially threatened by that because oh. they've been able to skate by for a really long time and they they've been taught to expect to be handed things that now they're yeah. having to prove themselves for against um, marginalized folks and mm. that can that can really rub them the wrong way <laughs> yeah. um yeah and it's interesting because that sort of like leadership pattern you can see it reflected in the art that a lot of these companies make like a, in the last 10 years i think a lot of the men who founded these video game studios like 10 or 15 years ago when they were in their 20s, they're in their 40s now. And so we had this sudden influx of games about dads. We had like a million games about dads all of a sudden where they were like, oh, I learned empathy because I had a child and now I want to make a dad game about how like I had a daughter and now I realized women are people. Or like I had a feeling for the first time. Like so just every game is about like being a dad now. It's just like, it gets so boring after a while because it's like, no, we get it. You're a bunch of like Gen Xers who have like a nine-year-old now <laughs> so true. yeah it, it really is wow i can't wait for our social anthropologist to dive into that one that's pretty oh that's, that's pretty so great <laughs> shit i love it well i read that you have a master's degree in victorian literature I do. I love this. This is great. You are the best nerd ever. Tell me about how the train contributed to people's visions of mental illness in literature. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for asking me this. (laughs) I'm seriously curious about this. My thesis is on this. So actually, the train and the invention of the train and train travel contributed largely to our modern concept of anxiety and like neural mental illness because before train travel, if you think about it, if you wanted to get from one place to another, you were taking a horse and carriage and it was going to take you like three weeks. So if you left at like 2.30 PM in a city and when you got to the next city three weeks later and their clock was off by like a couple of minutes, who cares? (laughs) Like when you were going to see people, you were like, I'm going to come over in the morning and people would be like, yeah, dope or whatever. Or like, I'll see you in three weeks on this day sometime. People would be like, yeah, okay. But then when trains happened, all of a sudden, all of these cities across the UK had to synchronize their clocks because we had train schedules now. And it was important that people were on time to catch their train and that it arrived in the other city at the appropriate time so it could move on to the next stop. And so suddenly people started carrying pocket watches and an obsession with time and being on time and arriving on time. And this idea of time ticking away became a lot more prevalent. And so a lot of people started to develop anxiety disorders to do with like um, time. I'm running out of time. I'm more anxious. Um, People also thought that the speeds at which the trains went like 20 kilometers an hour um, would rattle your brain loose. (laughs) Um, And so there was a lot of association with what they called nervous illness with train travel because you were obsessed with being on time with, you know, you're rattling around in this carriage So there was a lot of obsession with like neuroses and nervous illness and the train at that time. Fascinating. Yeah, super odd, eh? But I love the connection that absolutely makes sense to me. And now I'm wondering if this next level of anxiety we have is because of the new train internet. Yes. Oh, 100%. 100% where we're like consuming information the, the thoughts of the entire world constantly 24 hours a day and like we probably shouldn't do that <laughs> I don't think we were like necessarily made for that so yeah 
And the obsession with time persists in like a different way where like I fall victim to this all the time where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm 33. And if I see a 22 year old hit the New York times bestseller list, I'm like, I'm old and decrepit and they've done this thing before me and I'll never make it. And you know, what is that? It's awful. And a lot of teens are being really damaged by this where they feel like, oh, if I don't hit by 25, I might as well just You're like done. throw myself in a crypt and die, you know? What I mean? Yeah. Like, um, so there is this obsession with like, time is ticking. I have to hustle. I have to be I have successful to create right something. now, right I now. I have to be a millionaire yeah. right now. I have yes. to, yes, I, I hate because that when so I'm much. 40, I won't be able to. And it's like, no, like all the authors you love are like <laughs> middle age. Like people don't often don't start new careers until they're in their mid thirties and then become really successful. Like there is no time limit on this stuff, but it, we feel artificially like, yeah, you know, with these like Forbes 30 under 30 lists <laughs> and stuff like that, which I think are like really damaging. And I'm not just saying that because they never put me on one. But, like, <laughs> rude. <laughs> First of all, some of us didn't have generational wealth Forbes. It yeah, took us a Forbes. little longer <laughs> okay. to have the time to write the book. Um, yeah, yeah, I had to pay my rent first. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sam, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I really appreciate um, you taking the time. And <laughs> we had a lot of fun discussing the industries that you're in. It was such a blast. Thank you so much. I, uh, anytime. You have a good day. You too. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Our guest was Sam Maggs. I highly recommend her book, Girl Squads, particularly if you're like me and you need to learn more about women's history. It's a really good and fast read. This is Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella. (laughs) 